Hello? Miss Fletcher, Amos Tupper. Oh, good morning, Sheriff. I hate to be a bother to you, ma'am, but Miss Fletcher, something mighty peculiar has happened down here. Well, what do you mean by peculiar, Sheriff? I mean maybe murder peculiar. Oh, the taping starts in six minutes. Well, why didn't you say so? Hi, everybody, and welcome again to the IMMP podcast for your combination of uh, media criticism, nostalgia, and misuse of parental authority. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And once again, I'm making him watch television. Yay! I like and television. This is an episode that we knew was going to have to happen. It was a long time coming, but I'm glad we got to it because it's been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. This is a good one. I, I enjoyed this. I've got some memories back on this one, too. So, I think this is one of those things when people think of like nostalgia TV from the 80s. This has got to be at the top of the list. Oh, the, I, I've always run into the opposite thing. When I mention it people suddenly go, oh, yeah. And then it's either followed by, I love that show, or I never watched that show. But it's always that, oh, yeah, at the start of it. But it's not as well known to the people in my age demographic, I don't think. No? No. I mean, it's known as a cultural item, but it's not known as a thing they go to go see or go back to. Well, what we're talking about is Murder, She Wrote. Insert the the lovely sound of typewriters and that opening. I love that. The opening is great. One of the reasons I love the opening, it shows somebody really, really enjoying writing a book. Oh, yeah. That is so cool. In some ways, it's always like, it's an appetizer of sweet, oh, hey, look at this nice little life. Look at this, this, these delightful reactions. This seems nice and happy. Just to make sure that you, like, don't immediately get hit with the, and someone is dead a little too harshly. There's something so bright and chipper, which doesn't feel atonal, but it feels like it's easing you in. Yeah, they bring you in with that those neat, wonderful scenes of life in Maine and that wonderful uh, theme song that's been stuck in my head since we started rewatching this. And uh. and then you realize there's the curse of Jessica Fletcher, which we're going to have to talk about. Oh, we've got to talk about the Fletcher effect. Yep. But Murder, She Wrote, if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably watched Murder, She Wrote or certainly know the premise of it. But it's the amazingly talented Angela Lansbury playing Jessica Fletcher, who is who late in life has become a best-selling mystery author and finds herself in a position to be solving mysteries in her her life, I guess, in between writing books. Yeah, she, this is, she definitely has a set of skills. She's definitely shown as being this, this quick, sharp person. And, it, it's just the like the same things that make her books fascinating make her good at this because she's so attentive to these little things is part of the idea. Right. I get the impression that she, she writes these kind of Agatha Christie sort of books where it's some really specific detail turns out to be the, the murderer's undoing. And that's often the case in these uh, mysteries that we see in the TV show. Oh, yeah. As if, if, and you'd be the one to actually talk about this, but if the parlance is correct, it would be a cozy compared to a mystery. It's not a procedural where a, where a detective is following the the procedure and the, the steps of being a professional in the industry. It's not a thriller where there's the ticking clock most of the time. Some, some episodes become that. But both the stories she writes are implied to maybe be more of, and definitely some of the murders and such she solves are more in that cozy amateur approaches a thing and and is able to be the the solving of the mystery kind of person in this case. Yes. I don't want to just call him straight up a detective. Right. Murder, she wrote, I would say that the mysteries in the TV series Murder, she wrote are definitely cozies because they've got all the elements of a cozy. There's a 
an amateur sleuth, not somebody you would traditionally expect to be solving crimes, somebody whose primary vocation is something completely unrelated to actually solving crimes in the real world and can be a little bit quirky. I mean, the the person who runs a bakery and winds up solving crimes or a decorating consultancy or uh, or or somebody who's retired and, but knows a lot of people like Miss Marple in Agatha Christie's stories. That's kind of the hallmark of the cozy. I don't know for sure. I don't remember enough about what kind of books Jessica Fletcher is supposed to be writing, but I would bet that they're cozies. If they're not cozies, they're probably traditionals, as you would say, which is some people have described co- uh, traditionals as cozies without the cute hobby. <laughs> but it's it's not noir, definitely. It's not a police procedural because they'll often have a uh, an amateur sleuth or a private investigator who doesn't necessarily so- uh, follow the same kinds of procedures that police do. But uh, I, I, I could delve very deeply into this but yeah i'd say that certainly for the tv show if you're, if you're a fan of cozy mysteries uh this is uh the kind of thing you want and that might be also an inverse if you like this show maybe you'd enjoy a, a good cozy if you're looking for a book mystery yeah and cozies have, uh, and publishing have had a, a heyday lately there's starting to be a little bit of fall off i think as the market for cozies has gotten saturated but uh, you know, once something has its own section or subsection in Barnes & Noble, you know that it's about at saturation. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we saw that with the teen paranormal romance section. I think we saw that with the separate section for Cozy Mysteries. Oh, I'm, I'm going to put a pin in that. I keep on doing this, putting pins and things we talked about earlier to bring it back later. This might be <laughs> funny. But if we look at, if we take that lens and then apply it to, especially that first episode, it definitely sets that scene where she is this retired school teacher who is writing a book as a hobby on the side, doesn't expect to do anything with it. And is it her, her nephew? Yeah. She was recently widowed. So she was needed something to do. And yeah, her nephew who, who lives in New York, he's an accountant and he, um, he knew somebody at a publishing house and he like, he gave a copy of her manuscript to somebody in the publicity department at the publishing house. And somehow she got it to the CEO and lead editor. And of course, this is exactly how books get published every day. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but yeah, somehow that means her book that she never intended to even show anybody outside of her family winds up getting published and then climbing up the bestseller list. And she, um, compared to the other episodes, she's a lot more unwilling to go through with this. She doesn't want to be the, the mystery writer and the star. She's she's very insistent all throughout it, though. No, 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 that's me. I just want to go back to Maine, sit down. I don't want to deal with this all. And now someone's dead, and I'm the only person who noticed the thing with it, and I don't want to deal with this. And she's just much more reluctant. Yeah, she's very, very much the the small-town Maine Yankee, not interested in the big city or anything else, but much more of a folksy character in that first, in that pilot, to a two-part pilot. Then, I think then she is later. I think she becomes a little more sophisticated and more worldly, which I suppose makes sense if oh, she spends twelve years on the road promoting books and and earning a lot of money. Yeah, I uh, want I want to figure what the time gap is then between that first episode and some of these other stuff because there's a lot that happens in that time gap. Then, well, yeah, I mean the first act of that first episode must take months. Just for the book to go from acceptance to publication to critical acclaim to her being de- in demand on the talk show circuit. Yeah, she's that, that covers a lot of time in the beginning. And then between episode one and episode two, the shift was severe enough. I'm like, there's got to be a big time skip here. Right. There's got to be a lot of time between her being this reluctant and dealing with this kind of souring first encounters and then it being, oh yeah, I know this person. I'm going to this thing, and uh, and I'm I'm part of this little circle, and all of that. Right. I'm going to try not to spoil too many of the mysteries themselves as we talk about them because they are mysteries. That makes it a little tough. 
So let's think about that. If we do wind up spoiling anything, we'll give plenty of warning. Yeah, we tried to be careful in Columbo, but I think right. we still spoiled the episodes we did. Yeah. Well, the thing about Columbo is you know who did it at the beginning. Yeah, so. that, that, that's why it's easy. Yeah, I don't think we spoil in Columbo. I don't know if we spoiled the how Cottoms, what the weird little quirk was. I mean, we might have in some of them, but um, unlike Columbo, Murder She Wrote is a very straightforward mystery, and that it is a who done it. Gather everyone in the parlor. I'm going to point out who the killer is. Pretty much. It, it almost comes down to that sometimes. One of the first things, and something we kept noticing across all of this, and is one trend in Murder, She Wrote, is the nice people. There's always those people who she butts up against, and it's, it's a grating interaction to begin with, and there's always the very nice people. And there's a trend in here. Kind of a, a world perspective to the entirety of the thing. And I'm trying to figure out how much is spoiling to let you figure out mysteries early, but... Well, I don't think it would be... It doesn't take too much murder, she wrote, for it to become clear that the worst person besides the victim isn't usually the person who did it, just because they're too obvious, and it wouldn't be a fun mystery if the... There's always somebody who's... Usually the person who was killed was not a very nice person. That, and, yeah, and that's not always first... Uh, uh, that's always not apparent at first. Right. Many a times it's a, oh, I loved this guy. He was so sweet. Well, did you know that he locked up 12 puppies yeah. in his basement? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Like, there's always that they're not as good as you think. Yeah. And then there's always somebody other than the victim who is a terrible person. Nobody likes them. They set, set it up so that we, the audience, don't like them. And they had some reason why they, they, they might want to kill this person. They did, did have some motive. But they're too obvious, so it's pretty much never that person. And anybody who's seen any mystery isn't going to be surprised to hear that. About a third of the time, not a full half, but about a third of the time, that other person will get a little bit of redemption at the end, too. Like, okay, they're bad, but they could change. Or they're bad, but they're not always bad. They were just in a bad situation right now and they could turn it around kind of, I, I don't think everyone stay like not everyone stays that, that awful person you dealt with at the beginning. And we even get that with some of the murderers in murder. She wrote, they mm -hmm. often turn out to be people who, you know, what they did was clearly wrong, but they do feel some remorse by the end of it. There is some sense that they are accepting of justice and looking for redemption. For murder mysteries, they they can sometimes have a very, of course, a very somber ending, but there's always a little bit of note of hope at the ending of a murder she wrote. It's layered in a, there's a start out that seems, there's tension, but it's otherwise a nice environment. Then there's this thing that goes wrong, and that's a layer underneath it. Then you find out all the web of how everyone is either not as bad of enemies as it looked or they seemed so friendly, but they were really at each other's throats just a few weeks ago or a few months ago or when they first met. And some of that friendliness is an act and, Oh, this person does know this other person. And this kind of tangled web gets formed of who knows who. And then it's pieced together and it, it does come out much more somber. It's a, oh, there's a lot more going on here and a lot more pushed towards this edge. And then there's that final turnaround. But we can reset. We can build something nice again off of this. Like, this tension has been resolved. It has not been resolved in a way we would like it to have been resolved. But we shouldn't let that stop us from looking on the bright side and going forward from here. Kind of positivity. And you make a really good point about the, the, the people for the most part. As I said, there's always that one rat, and even they wind up being a little bit quirky or having some, some redemptive quality. Maybe what we're getting to is a characteristic of a cozy mystery in that even though it is a story about murder, the place is not a place you would mind spending time, and the people are not people you would really mind spending time with. Yeah. Somehow it, it's, it's comforting, even though it's a story about murder. Even the clues that are found are not about the objects. If you find a, a MacGuffin on the beach, it's not about, oh, holding this MacGuffin, having this thing solves it all. 
but it's usually a in a point and click adventure kind of way use macguffin on tim use <laughs> macguffin on sarah use macguffin on susie and re- see how each of them responds to the macguffin and that's the actual clue that cinches it it's not the thing it's the people again the thing just happens to let jessica get something more from the people to piece together the final bits right and in in that sense it's it's like some of the columbos and some columbos it's just the fact of a piece of evidence that columbo has found proves who the murderer is and sometimes it's something he found and he uses that to get a psychological response from the murderer gives the murderer away mm-hmm. and the similarities we're seeing and the, the reasons we're comparing Murder, She Wrote, and Columbo are no accident because Murder, She Wrote also created by Levinson and Link, the amazing team that created Columbo. Levinson and Link. I am excited. I need to look through their their his, their uh, their IMDb pages and see what else they've made now because I like this stuff. This is my jam. Yeah, I've got more Levinson, Levinson and Link to show you. And, Huzzah! Uh, and and uh, I think you're, you're going to like it. So I, I think if nothing else, I'm turning you into a Levinson and Link fan. Oh, absolutely. This is this is exactly up my alley. And even in terms of the fact that there is always this there is there's this oscillation between heavy and light episodes across their entire thing. Maybe it's just the writing teams these they they assemble. But there are episodes both of Columbo and of this that never feel like they're not in the same world. But they feel so, like, there are light episodes and heavy episodes in terms of how and why people are killed and such. There there is the episode where it's, you know, this fight, but she's going to a, a, a party that seems bright and fun. And that one actually turned out to be the heaviest. Let me rephrase this. But there's other episodes where it's like, oh, here's just touring a city. And there's a murder in the background. An interesting dramatic murder but it's almost like a fun little tourist thing for a bit and i enjoy that yeah they do a good job of using the fact that she is a a well-known mystery writer to get her into different environments and interacting with different people so she can they want her in some some new city it's all she has an interview there she's doing a book tour whatever reason or she as often as not, she's visiting relatives, but they have plenty of reasons why they can get her out of town. Right. And, the, and that made the uh, really the pilot more distinct from most of the rest of the series in that she wasn't yet such a well-known writer. She was a, a new writer that people wanted to talk to because her book had launched itself onto the bestseller list so quickly. But she wasn't yet doing big book tours and things. And you mentioned a party. You were talking about that pilot. I uh, no, I was thinking the one with the barn. Oh yeah, the, the 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 concert. You're right. Well, the pilot really. Uh, just to start with the pilot, I think that that makes it clear that this is a a mystery show for mystery fans. Oh yeah, that is that is very much. So the pilot is t- entitled like the murder of Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Uh, actually, now that I think about it, that was a more fun party. I want to go to that party. <laughs> well, it had Bert Conby playing the piano, and it had Brian Keith uh, as a fish stick magnate or something. I, don't, <laughs> I forget what. Yeah. But yeah, that's another, another thing about this show. You do get a, always a wonderful guest cast of people coming in to play victims and suspects and all these. But it was a, the murder itself takes place in at a costume party. And the victim was dressed as Sherlock Holmes, and they find this person dressed as Sherlock Holmes dead in the pool the next morning. So, yeah, it's, that's kind of setting a tone for uh, this kind of mystery. Oh, yeah. Um, and that one's also fun because it has, the, it has the, the party environment to introduce all the people and then has fun setting up that web of interconnections of, oh, this person knows that person, and this person was having an affair with that person, and... The, this person hired this other person to investigate third person and things like that. Yeah, it does really want you to, it tempts you to draw a way out of the house and put chess pieces down to figure out exactly who was where and with whom at the time of the, uh, the murder to 
and confirm it, uh, all the alibis and all that. It has some of the early fun of uh, Jessica's quirky, like, nope, I'm here doing the thing now approach to the mystery solving, where she's there, like, being stopped because she's climbing the garden to figure out how someone got into the house and things like that. And Yeah, it, they they very quickly establish the fact that it's just she's got a mind that can't let go of things. So she has to, she has some inconsistency she notices either in something she sees or in someone's story, she has to check it out. And so you're right. Yeah. She's climbing the rose trellis to see if it would be possible to get to the second floor. And if so, where would they have left footprints and all this? And also it shows the fact that she's just got this magnetic trustability to police officers where after being bothered, that she's not like letting go of this, the officer there is like, no, no, okay, now get, tell me what you're thinking. I can see it in your face now. You're thinking something. Tell me. And suddenly she's got this friend in law enforcement after, what, 15 minutes at most? Well, she's one of the most non-threatening amateur sleuths so you can imagine. I mean, she's this nice little old lady from Maine. So once people see her mind at work... They can be a little intimidated by that, but otherwise they're not intimidated by her. And I think it's a consistent thing you'll see that there are police officers who recognize the value of her her help. And without wanting to give her all the credit, are very happy to get her help because they can. she can see things that they can't. And we were mentioning about her going places. She has a lot of murders happen in Cabot Cove, where she's from. And the characters there in that small town in Maine become a staple. But there's usually counterparts or similar roles being filled for a, a group of people to assist her when she's someplace else. Right. She You'll... usually has a friend who can be the person she can bounce stuff off of and a police officer she can work with. Now, which one of those two is going to be fed up with her solving a mystery will swap if she's not in Cabot Cove. But right. there is kind of a a set of irregulars positions that gets filled every time. And some of them will be like, Oh, I've read your book. I love it. I love your help. And some of them like, no, no, you stay out of this. This isn't your business, ma'am. <laughs> now, sometimes there are the, the, the deaths in Cabot Cove are not necessarily of Cabot Cove residents. The episode right after the pilot is set in Cabot Cove. And we get a chance to meet the Cabot Cove sheriff or chief of police and, and her friend who's a fisherman see more of the town where she uh lives but the murder involves a group who landed in cabot cove uh after their yacht was damaged in a, a hurricane that was just off the coast the night before so yeah it was a it was a death a body discovered in cabot cove but at least they didn't have to change that population sign that week yeah, they. I think they do plenty of times in the uh, the series. Cabot Cove population dwindling. I did see a uh, uh, an article somewhere. I'll see if I can find a link to it that was analyzing the the mortality rate in Cabot Cove and like identifying it as the most dangerous place in the, in America. <laughs> because when you when you compare the population to the number of homicides. The the murder rate per capita is like higher than any city in, in America. Oh my goodness! Well, I think this is a perfect lead into the concept of the Fletcher effect. Then, all right. So this is I've seen it kind of discussed elsewhere. It's always in more vague terms, and I can't tell if I am putting a specific stamp on it or a specific like parsing of it and then like explanation to it. But it's this like magnetic force around Jessica Fletcher that means if there is a tension, if there is a a risk of such escalate, escalation to murder, the people who might be involved in that situation are gravitated towards her. And the final timing will in fact line up so that it happens within her vicinity. It's it's this, like her ability to solve this makes it so that reality will warp that if it's going to happen, it'll happen within her frame. It, like these people could have been angry at each other for months, but they will happen to wind up choosing when she is in town to actually kill off the other guy. 
So she is some kind of lethal Suzumiya Haruhi. Kind of, yeah. If Haruhi is Haruhi from uh, from that anime is willing, is so so excited about the concept of aliens and all these other things that they are gravitated towards her. Jessica Fletcher is so good at murder solving and so attentive to these details that the situation that is already out there that will have a murder will be gravitated to happen around when she's there. (laughs) It's not that she's causing murders. It's not that she is willing murders into existence, but it's the fact that reality is warping to make sure that, that if the murder will happen, she is there to solve it. Oh, that's interesting because the, the series eventually does start to deal with the fact that where Jessica Fletcher goes, people tend to die. Yeah. And there are characters who comment on that. But I, I kind of like that idea that it's not that she's causing this lethal confrontation. She's just making a, a little adjustments to when and where it's likely to happen. Mm-hmm. She's got this probability field. Okay. I like that. It, like it would have happened anyway. It just hap- If it was going to happen, it'll happen when she's there. Exactly. And that means justice is more likely to occur because she can be there to solve it. Exactly. And it means that she constantly has a set of interesting types of murders to review, which I assume helps fuel this continually growing set of well-liked novels she's publishing. You know, I I don't know if they ever really suggest that it works in that direction. There are definitely plots where some detail that she researched for a book, some type of poison or weapon or something that she researched for one of her books turns out to be involved, and that's why she could recognize it when the police didn't. I'm sorry, Doctor, but I don't believe that Mr. Coleman died of a heart attack. The slight color drain around his lips, the faint blue tint on the moons of his fingernails. I didn't notice. I'm sure a coroner's examination will show that he was poisoned. I'm, I'm not really conversant on the subject of poisons. Well, it's unlikely that you would be with this one. It's very rare, very deadly, and very fast acting. Better on the Amazon. Of course. I don't know if they've ever indicated that some murder that she actually witnessed or was involved in solving, she then turns into a fictionalized version for her novels. Yeah, I, like, I want to know if that's the case. I can't imagine why she wouldn't, but maybe that seems a little ghoulish and they don't want to portray Jessica Fletcher in that light. If she's going to be around this many murders, though, the idea of the, oh yes, my latest murder, my latest book involves a stabbing. I got the idea from the 20 stabbings I've now seen <laughs> victims of, because it gave me enough information to figure out how those happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is not a one-to-one scale, but this is an aggregate system. Yeah, it's like telling the police, oh, this was clearly an arterial wound. Oh, why did you research that for a book? Oh, no, I saw three of them last month. <laughs> exactly. I mean, one of the episodes we saw, she was talking about, like, studying rare, undetectable poisons. Right. Yeah. And As you, you co- do. You right. combine that being in, like, season one, I think. Yep. And the fact that in between episode, the two-part episode one and episode two, she's got an entire shelf of books she's published now. There's a significant time skip there. There is a significant amount of distance between episode one and episode two, where she's done all this other research, where she's published all these other books, and she goes from being this reluctant sleuth to this repository of how to kill a man inside her head, (laughs) but too sweet on the outside to do it. She'll figure out how you did, but she won't do it herself. She's dangerous in just that amount of knowledge though. And she's also now got all these connections into all these other places. And is just very happy with it instead of being not wanting to get into this society. She's members of things and knows people and oh yeah, by the, by later in the series, and I think all of that must have happened between episodes one and two. I guess so. Yeah, they're definitely that's the biggest observable time jump in the, in the pilot. She's written one book. They do make it clear that this wasn't just one and done. She had ideas for more books, even though she had never intended to get her even her, her first book published. Somebody her her publisher is saying, you know, the one thing I wish I had were a dozen more books. 
by J.B. Fletcher, and she says, well, that 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 part is just hard work. See, so figure she knows she can write more of these and is planning to do so, and sure enough, by the second uh, episode, she's written six of them. That also puts it into an interesting thing, because it's hard to tell how fast these are happening. Right. I, I take it that the pace kind of increases over the seasons. I don't know. I guess they, so. they don't want as much of a jump between episodes in terms yeah. of how long it's been, because it would push how long it's been for other characters and such too far out. I mean, back in those days, it was rare for a publisher to want to publish more than one book for a writer in a year. So that means that you're assuming at least six years between episodes one and two? Yeah, I don't know. We might be trying to line it up with reality a bit too much. But that's why you know, Stephen King started using a pseudonym, because he had too many books to publish, and the publisher didn't want to saturate the market with Stephen King novels too quickly. No, that makes sense. So yeah, we're avoiding talking about episodes, but... Well, we've talked about two of them. We've talked. We, we've given the setup of a few, and I think that's useful. We've talked about that first one where the setup was she was kind of brought into the New York publishing world because her book had gotten published and was invited to this party. And the second one was about this group who had uh, whose, whose yacht was damaged in the hurricane and, and one of their, their member wound up discovered dead. I'm thinking the other episodes we watched then. We watched the episode where she is uh, going to be on a New Orleans television interview program. That was a fun one. That's one of my favorites from that season. That's oh. season one, I think that is. And that's definitely one of the ones I think uh, emphasizes is part of what I state the Fletcher effect on because she happens to mix up a thing in her schedule so that she's there two days early because she was supposed to be there. She's supposed to be in another town to inaugurate the opening of a library, but she gets that mixed up with when she's supposed to be recording a show. So she's in town two days early, which means she's available when the murder happens a day before she was supposed to arrive in town. Right. So it's not just her effect on other people, but it's also her own schedule. She winds up, quote unquote, making mistakes in order to be there at the time the murder is going to happen. Exactly. Interesting. And then... And that was an all... Is, that, that one in New Orleans is also a great example of what you were saying about the, the environment and the people usually being kind of nice because in that one... The uh, the victim is not a nice guy. He's a, 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 a an accomplished jazz musician, has this big deal to go and headline in Las Vegas, and he's not taking with him his sidemen who, who came up with him and who are part of the reason why he had his success. And they all seem like great people. All the people around him seem so nice, really disappointed at how he's treating them, and then he ends up dead. And you realize, well, it's got to be one of these people, but I don't want to think any of them is a murderer. They've successfully surrounded this one awful dead guy with people too nice for me to want them to be killers. <laughs> right. And and that's kind of part of the, the thing, because as it's being solved and the the arrow of of potential murderer points at different people in the, in the web, they're... You, you're like, yay, justice is happening, but you also are a little sad that it means this person did that. Right. And we learn more about several of the people around them, darker things in their past. And that, that makes that a, a very interesting and more complex than a lot of the murder she wrotes are. Mm-hmm. That, one's, that one's got a lot of depth. I feel like whoever wrote that one also knows the place very well. Because, I think, yeah. Like, one of the characters in that is a taxi driver who knows New Orleans. And there's something about the the amount of regional style that they make sure is in there. This is a, a story that has to take place here. Yeah. In many ways. Right. It, you wouldn't have the right mix of history and competing groups and locations where it could happen and changes happening at the same time it all would have to coincide at this location yeah they did a good job of really making it i mean it's it's a made for tv version of new orleans but making it a new orleans story they do mm -hmm. a really good job oh and that uh taxi driver played by garrett morris one of the original not ready for primetime players in saturday night live oh he was excellent he was good that was fun 
So that's, that may be my favorite of, of the ones that we watched, although we, we saw a lot of good ones. Certainly mm-hmm. one of my favorites of that season. And we only watched episodes from the first few seasons. I think we haven't gone past season three. I want to say the last episode we watched was season three because it deals with later stuff. That actually, we jumped into season four, I think, with that. Oh, one. okay. And I mean, we, we selected that one for a specific reason, and that is that it's it involves Jessica Fletcher being a witness in a, a murder trial. And the uh, the attorney cross-examining her winds up raising some of those same kinds of questions. You know, everywhere you go, people are dying. Is it not a fact, Mrs. Fletcher, that a niece of yours, Victoria Griffin, was arrested for murder last year? Yes. Is it not a fact that another niece, Tracy McGill, was also arrested for murder? Yes, but I can explain And that your nephew, Grady Fletcher, was arrested not once but twice, also on the charge of homicide? Seems, madam, it seems that one of New England's most respected families is a breeding ground for homicidal maniacs. How how many of your nieces and nephews were accused of murder at some point? <laughs> and that's one of the few things that may give you some continuity here in terms of the episodes needing to be seen in certain orders. There's her um, her nephew, who's the guy who wound up getting her book started on the path to publication, is um, is the suspect in the pilot, and he winds up getting into various kinds of trouble over the years and over the, the seasons. Yeah, and, you know he, how many times he's been arrested is kind of the, one of the few things that that you want to keep track of over time. Maybe <laughs> how many jobs he's had, especially in later seasons, he winds up switching careers plenty. Well, there's also another really awesome thing about that court episode. Yeah, and that is he's back. Number six. Number six. Patrick McGowan is playing this wealthy, quirky, extremely talented. Canadian trial lawyer. And this is McGowan with all the energy and all of the, the wildness that we saw him pour into the prisoner, but contained to just himself, the rest of the world doesn't warp to him the same way in this one, which just makes him this much more out there and this much more bombastic. And it's awesome. He is terrific. And he is another Levinson and Link staple. I don't know if we ever addressed this in our Columbo episode of the podcast, but he does show up in a number of terrific Columbos. Some of the best Columbos. Yes, some of the very best. Some of the weirdest. Especially the weirdest episode of all. But also some of the best. And we'll have to talk about those sometime. We will. But it's, it's great to see him show up in this as well, because he was so great to see in Columbo. And he's the one who gets to point out how many of your of your family members have been accused of murder. How many people die in your vicinity? And he uses <laughs> that to try to character assassinate Jessica Fletcher. Yep. It, it that one's interesting more as a summarization to the rest of the the show so far. I I don't know if the murder in that one was as strong. No, I I don't know that it was. It it involved um, mistaken identities and. Um, was it mistaken identities? No, I thought it was going to be a mistaken identity. I don't want to give away too much, uh, but yeah, it it um emer- involved a murder within the family of a friend and fellow writer who was in uh, Quebec. Yeah, that, more of that one takes place in the trial and in the the yeah. the environment scenes. In that sense, which when you put it in context, I guess after. Almost four seasons of crime solving, of, of murder mystery stories. Having one that actually addresses the fact that this means there's going to be a murder trial is an interesting take. And I also love the fact that, that especially when we're talking about how this depicts the world and such, that's what I remember most from this show, is in some ways this this version of the world it presents. The murders happen, but there's this this optimistic joy to the entire thing. And that permeates more so when watching multiple episodes, I think. Yeah. You get kind of pulled into this world. I want to say the world of Cabot Cove, but it's also the rest of the world. Cabot Coveified. Yeah. You're not, this is not a show about New Orleans. This is an episode about New Orleans. This is the, 
the version of New Orleans that Jessica Fletcher gets to experience when she goes there. Exactly. Or San Francisco or whatever city she winds up in in New York. To, to talk about the, the history we have to both of the shows, this is a show that was on reruns a lot when I was younger. Yep. And so there's plenty of memories of mine where I'm sitting on the floor as a little kid playing with my underwater Legos. Usually trying to build a giant robot out of them, but that's a side comment. The Legos were not actually underwater. No, no. These were the underwater-themed sets. Oh, got it. And it's me building these things out of that and looking up and watching bits of Murder, She Wrote. And that's, like, (laughs) engraved into my mind somewhere as this kind of environment. There's something about Cabot Cove, and I can't tell how much of it's the show and how much of it is my memory now. But it has that same friendly approachableness that Lego things do. That minifigure little <laughs> smile to it. But if one of the minifigures in your collection might be holding the tiny little silver knife, and there's the one minifigure on its side on the carpet there, <laughs> is kind of the image in my head. Yeah, I guess warping your mind started pretty early. Then. Oh, it, yeah. This is this is not a this is not an actively started project. This is a documentary of <laughs> of an ongoing thing for the last twenty something years. Yep. But you're right. It, it has been a staple of reruns. It went for about twelve episodes. Uh, excuse me, twelve episodes. About twelve seasons, I think. Yeah, twelve seasons and two hundred and sixty four episodes and four TV movies, according to Wikipedia. Oh, there are TV movies as well. Four TV movies. Well, I think, you know, at some point we're going to be watching more of this. It's hard to talk about a series like this when we've only watched four or five of the episodes right now. But you definitely, it, it, that's, even that is enough to let you know what you're going to be getting. It's a very comforting series in that way. It's kind of like Columbo. It's, it's very, very appealing because you know what you're going to get, at least in terms of tone. And, and you watched this when it was first airing, right? You were... You were in this when it was first going on, right? Yeah, I, I didn't necessarily watch it you know, routinely or religiously. My parents were a fan of the show, so they watched it regularly, and I saw at least a few episodes every season. And then I wound up seeing a bunch of them in reruns later also. Oh, the first five of those seasons, by the way, are on Amazon Prime now. Okay, so that's people good. Have like, kind of like The Prisoner, people have a good way to get into this and start to watch some of it. If, they, if somehow they've missed watching it in reruns, they can see it on Amazon. I should check. We should check if Patrick McGowan's in other episodes, just so <laughs> you can like watch those. Yep. Although, if you watch those while in the middle of watching The Prisoner, suddenly this is a very different method for the village to break him. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, now I want to see Angela Lansbury as number two. <laughs> Why was there? There was never a female number two, was there? Yes, what, there was. There was, was a couple of instances. You're right. You're right. You're right. I take that back. There were. They were good. Mm-hmm. But Angela Lansbury would have made a really good number. She two. would have been excellent. She she sells this character. Angela Lansbury takes the character of Jessica Fletcher and makes it work. It would be hard in the same environment to have someone else play this because she can play this. She's just so expressive. She can go from looking really, really happy to looking really concerned in a very smooth fashion. She can be intensely distracted while other people are talking in a in an acting way. Like, no, no, no. You can see on her face that she's thinking about something else while this other actor is going through his character's lines and actions here. She can play that kind of in the character's head on her face in that sense. Well, yeah, she is just such an amazingly talented performer. And you can see this... You go all the way back to her earliest film roles, like playing, there's a little role like playing, I think, the maid in Gaslight. And you can just see this is an amazing actor, even in that part. Uh, In addition to being beautiful, she was amazing in that old movie. And so, of course, you know, decades later, still having honed her craft, she is such a, a good actor. And it would be easy to say or to think it's kind of a waste of such a talented actor to be in this kind of light TV show. But as you've pointed out, she is using every bit of that craft to make this character work. This character could have been played in a very superficial way, and she wouldn't have been nearly as interesting as seeing somebody like Angela Lansbury play Jessica Fletcher. You you want to see the places that, you know, as we're saying, were Cabot Covified, but you want to see 
Jessica Fletcher going through these places. And that's the drive of it. Right. If it was just a an aerial over America, but everything had this slight tint to it, it wouldn't be the same. It's the it's the getting to be excited along with her on some of the things and horrified along with her on other things that that drives this show. It continues to do so. It it gets quirkier and quirkier in terms of the subject matter of the mysteries over over the years. I, we did not watch it, but I do know in my head that I, I've i seen the episode where there's a VR game being made about <laughs> one of her books, and that one is so funny. We're going to have to dig that one up, too. We're going to have to pull that one up. I think that's like really late season 11 or something. But I think the fact that we're looking ahead to that is uh, bringing us around to our, our usual questions. I think it is. So, for TV shows, our, our first uh, summary question is, binge or no binge? Binge. Yes. Binge this. It is very bingeable. They they go down so smooth. Yes, these are so smooth. And they're so fun. And and, and it keeps the pace interesting because it's not always in the same place. That bouncing back and forth between Cabot Cove and a book tour and a visiting a relative and such means that the episodes are distinct enough. It doesn't blend into a blur because they're all just happening in one place. But it all has that same style so that it's it's all approachable and it moves easily. Now, this is not a show when you want to binge this show. It's not a show that it's going to keep you staring wrapped at your television every moment. This is not a complicated action thriller, but this is a I've got to clean the house today or I've got a whole bunch of laundry to fold. Absolutely. You put on murder, she wrote. By the time you're done, like your house will be spotless and you will have watched six episodes of Murder, She Wrote, and you will have enjoyed every single one of them. Oh, yeah. Your towels will be fluffy and perfectly folded and in the <laughs> cabinet, and you'll be delighted, both because Jessica Fletcher has put six murders behind bars and because you got all the stuff you need to do today. Done. And you'll be trying to figure out if your um, your linen closet would be a reasonable place to hide a corpse. Yeah. Until the police had completed their other investigations. That is one of those side effects to the binge, but it's not a bad side effect. It's interesting enough. Yeah. So this is as a slam dunk for a verdict of, vin, uh, of binge. Absolutely. So the next question is revive, reboot, or rest in peace? I want to hear yours first on this one. Oh, gosh. I'm going to eliminate reboot. Oh, Though I could very easily be persuaded otherwise. I'm going to eliminate reboot because I could so easily see this done badly. Like I was saying, Jessica Fletcher could be a a superficial and uninteresting character without the talent of Angela Lansbury and the overall guidance of the tone of the show from Levinson and Link. That I could really see it, somebody trying to reboot Murder, She Wrote and doing it really badly. I don't know if a revival would work. Uh, oh, and, and, and a reboot, like I said, I could be persuaded otherwise. If if they cast somebody I really had faith in and I summoned some writers and producers behind it were really people I knew were talented, I could be willing to give that a shot. I'm really tempted to say rest in... I'm going to say rest in peace. Okay. As much as I like this, I don't need to see them attempt to bring it back in a way that wouldn't really match the tone and the talent of the original. I completely understand what you mean. I'm very glad I had you go first, though, because I have a reboot. I really want a reboot. And I know that there's a risk. There's a risk anytime we suggest a reboot, because a show done badly can actually do... can actually hurt the enjoyment, I feel, sometimes of a later show. Not directly, but just in a... Now the entire thing feels like, you know, someone someone went into this and it, it should have been left to, to, to remain as it was. But the fact that there is that gap between episode one and episode two, I think there's a completely wonderful other show built in there and a completely other tangent that this root idea that episode one gives you could go along. And that is worth trying. I want to see a reboot where she hasn't gotten to do all of the early research before the episodes start rolling. 
I want to see a version of this where she is the bit more reluctant mystery solver, but she keeps researching. I want to see all that learning that happened in between those episodes and all that experience as a writer and such that she built up shown on screen with a new person. And you'd have to find a good actor to do this. Mm -hmm. But I think that that would be a different enough story, but still worthy of the name and the style to be able to warrant a reboot to explore that avenue. This person who is similarly attentive but give an give us a a jessica fletcher that is just a studier who will learn the thing needed to figure out why this is important and why this person did that somebody who's learning her craft as a writer while she's solving mysteries and learning to do that as well yeah and i think that's an interesting enough take on it that would keep the same setup and go differently that it wouldn't hurt this original show, which did so much already. And it would allow for a different version of this sort of story and different character in a modern setting. This is also then a a Jessica Fletcher in an age of Wikipedia and easier research. But she still has to go hunting for the specific tinier details she needs for this. Well, you know, if if there was going to be a reboot, that's one I would be interested in seeing. That's a good idea. Yeah, so I'm I'm voting reboot, and I'm, maybe I can convince you on that. But definitely, if they if they can't go to it with a a strong enough team behind it, I'd want them to leave it to rest in peace, like yeah. you're describing. That risk is there, but if they can get it right, I'd love to see them explore that. All right, I like that. Well, I think that wraps it up for us um, for this podcast. Uh, definitely go out and binge Murder, She Wrote. And uh, and if you have opinions about whether or not it should be revived, rebooted, or allowed to rest in peace, let us know. We're interested in uh, hearing what you think about that. Yeah, where, where can everything they get in contact with us? Well, uh, the, the show itself, uh, you can go to immproject.com. That'll get you all of our back episodes. It'll get you a contact page where you can find us. It'll get you uh, a link so you can shop for things like T-shirts and, and things like that that we've got. Uh, we'll also have a link to our Discord, and you can always chat with us there. Mm-hmm. And there are there are boards there for people to talk about the shows that we have watched, the shows we haven't watched yet, and shows that they remember that they love. It's an excellent place. Come chat with us. And you'll also find links there to support the show on Patreon. Uh, that's a great way to support the show so we can keep doing it. Other ways to support the show are to uh, review and leave us a bunch of stars on iTunes. And just to, to tweet about it, tell people about it, let people know the show is out there. Yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter at, at itemcrafting, and Dad, you are. I am uh, at by Matthew Porter on Twitter. Uh, you can also find me at uh, matthewfporter.com online. Oh, and the show is on the, uh, Twitter uh, as uh, immpcast. Mm-hmm. So yeah, talk to us on Twitter as well. Post about you know get people hearing about this because. We'd love to be able to chat with you about what you think as to what shows could come back and what shows should should be allowed to, to rest. So that's all for us for now. We'll be back in a couple of weeks talking about another TV show or movie or comic book or something. Something that I'm forcing Ian to experience. Huzzah! And remember, go find something new to watch.